0: The following episode contains descriptions of sexual violence and may not be suitable for everyone. Please see the episode notes for more information about support services. It's a cloudy day in the fall of 1991. A group of reporters is crowded onto a dock at Tenerife, the largest of the Canary Islands. They are standing beside a 180-foot yacht with microphones and notepads in hand as they eagerly await a statement. A brown-haired woman wearing a red plaid suit and dangly gold earrings emerges from the yacht's cabin. She's somber, but composed as she strides down the deck to face the assembled reporters. I also want to take this opportunity to thank all the many hundreds of people who have sent messages of support to us at this very, very sad time. The woman's name is Ghislaine Maxwell, and she's standing on her father Robert Maxwell's yacht. She's the youngest of his nine children, but the name he chose for his yacht is a good indication that she was his favorite. The name on the hull of the boat is Lady Ghislaine. Just two days earlier, Robert Maxwell fell from a deck of the very yacht she's standing on. A fisherman found his body floating in the Atlantic, naked, but with no signs of violence. The family believes that Robert went out for some fresh morning air. He had a favorite spot on the rear lower deck. The family are convinced it was here he fell. But the London tabloids aren't so sure. They've been covering Robert Maxwell for decades, as he made millions running one of the UK's largest publishing groups and won a seat in British Parliament. And they have other theories about the tycoon's demise. Or he could have killed himself. That he therefore threw himself off the side or jumped off the side. And then there's still another explanation for Maxwell's death. I think that it could have been that he was murdered. The last thing that we saw that uh, he committed suicide. Ghislaine Maxwell grew up in a 53-room mansion. Now, in the aftermath of her father's mysterious death, accusations of financial wrongdoing start to come out. It turns out that Robert Maxwell had run into trouble and stolen more than a billion dollars from his businesses and his employer's pension funds to keep his empire afloat. And something else emerges about Robert Maxwell in his daily routine. Years later, Maxwell's butler told the BBC about a strange ritual RM, as he calls his old boss, had after lunch and it involved meeting young girls. He was in the habit of, um, after lunch, sending for a girl who would come to his sitting room and the doors would be locked from the inside. It suggested to me and others um, that were close to RM that it was just a, I don't know, fantasy relationship with these young girls. And afterwards? I understood that presents were given to the girls, yes. What sort of presents? jewelry. This is a sort of thank you presents. Thank you presents, yes. In the wake of her father's death, Ghislaine Maxwell will move to New York City and begin dating Jeffrey Epstein. Before long, she'll be managing his multiple homes and organizing his travel. For decades, she'll help him navigate the world of the super rich and powerful. And she also plays another crucial role which women like Virginia Roberts Gouffre will later talk about with reporters. Geelin brought me in. I brought other girls in. Those girls brought other girls in. And no matter what, Jeffrey constantly had that open, revolving door of young women, young teenagers, children, I like to call them, coming through his door for one purpose and one purpose alone. The Mysterious Mr. Epstein is sponsored by Best Fiends. So you've got your phone in your hand and a few moments to yourself. You know what will happen as soon as you unlock the screen. Politics, epidemics, nonsense from all directions. Don't go down that path. These are your moments. Use them wisely. Best Fiends is a casual but stimulating problem-solving game that has you using your wits to save the cute bugs of minutia from an invasion of greedy slugs. Minutia is a fun, colorful place full of cute characters that I need to collect to use strategically in solving challenging puzzles anytime I need a break. Plus, there are new theme challenges waiting for me every few weeks. Best Fiends has thousands of levels already, with new levels, events, and characters added every month. It's hours of fun right at your fingertips, and you can even play offline. With over 100 million downloads and tons of five-star reviews, Best Fiends is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. From Wondery, I'm Lindsey Graham, the host of American Scandal, and this is The Mysterious Mr. Epstein. My hands water. This is Episode 3, All Access. Through the late 1980s and early 90s, Jeffrey Epstein sees his fortunes rise. He claims that his firm, J. Epstein & Co., manages the investments of numerous ultra-rich clients. But the bulk of his wealth, and his time, is spent on his relationship with billionaire Les Wexner. Jeffrey Epstein is not only making a lot of money, he's also now putting it to work aggressively. He buys a huge Manhattan townhouse from Wexner, and then spends millions gut-renovating it including an elaborate closed-circuit video system. He buys a 10,000-acre ranch in Santa Fe, which Epstein tells a reporter makes the townhouse look like a shack. He's donating to philanthropic and political causes as a way to gain more access. He's traveling the world on a private jet. But even that much money only carries Epstein so far up the social ladder. That's where his new relationship with Ghislaine Maxwell comes in. Ghislaine is well-connected. She went to Oxford. She's refined. As a New York Society acquaintance later tells New York Magazine, she had an upbringing and taste and knew how to run a house and a boat and how to entertain. You can't buy that. You can't buy access either. Ghislaine moves to Manhattan in 1991. What's left of her father's fortune after the scandal still affords her a $100,000 a year trust fund. That would be a comfortable living for many people, but not for her. She gets a job in real estate to help, but that's not enough. So she seeks out a benefactor. After a breakup with a wealthy Italian man, she meets Jeffrey Epstein. At first, Epstein and Maxwell are a couple. One friend remembers that Maxwell was, quote, madly in love with Jeffrey. But soon, their relationship becomes something less conventional. They're no longer romantically linked, but they're still constantly together. Epstein says they're best friends. She tells a friend she's still, quote, sleeping in his bed from time to time. The two are seen around together often at dinners and society benefits. Maxwell's close with Prince Andrew, the Duke of York, and she introduces him to Epstein. A 1992 party at Mar-a-Lago, Donald Trump and Jeffrey Epstein shared a joke and a laugh. NFL cheerleaders danced among the crowd. NBC News recently released footage of Epstein and Maxwell together from a 1992 party. Donald Trump is whispering something in Epstein's ear, while Ghislaine stands with them both. She's smiling and laughing, with a bob haircut and a white-collared shirt. But aside from socializing together, there's another side to Epstein and Maxwell's relationship. She's so deferential to him, so eager to please, so quick to do his bidding— That her friends wonder if maybe Ghislaine works for Epstein. One acquaintance remembers Maxwell keeping a strict diet for Epstein, since he likes his women thin. Maxwell jokes to her, I do it the way the Nazis did it with the Jews, the Auschwitz diet. I just don't eat. But the partnership, whatever its true nature, works in elevating Epstein's social status. Soon after Bill Clinton is elected president, Epstein cuts a $10,000 check to help pay for the refurbishments to the White House. On September 29, 1993, Epstein and Maxwell are invited to D.C. for an evening reception that includes a tour of the newly redecorated White House and dessert with the President and First Lady. Epstein and the President don't know each other well, if they've even met at all at this point, but Epstein seems eager to get in with the most powerful man in the world. The name of Clinton's social secretaries typed into his little black book of powerful names and numbers. And then, on the afternoon of March 30th, 1995, Air Force One touches down at Palm Beach International Airport. President Clinton's motorcade chokes traffic on I-95 as he makes his way to the strip of multi-million dollar homes along the intercoastal waterway. The president spends the afternoon golfing, then heads to Revlon tycoon Ron Perlman's house for a very private dinner. Attending is just the president of the United States and a small group of big-money donors. The guest list includes the singer Jimmy Buffett, Miami Vice star Don Johnson, a few other wealthy people, and Jeffrey Epstein. The cost to attend the dinner is up to $100,000 per plate. And later, when Clinton is no longer president, Epstein will become even closer with him. Flight logs will show that Clinton traveled on Epstein's private jet at least 26 times. Epstein's been on a quest to reach the top of the social ladder, and a cozy dinner with a president, a rock star, a TV star, and a billionaire CEO certainly seems to indicate that Jeffrey Epstein has arrived. Meanwhile, Epstein always makes time for Les Wexner. After all, ever since Wexner gave him power of attorney, Epstein has been the billionaire's most trusted ally. Wexner's Ohio-based retail empire is humming. The Limited, Abercrombie & Fitch, and Victoria's Secret are dominating their corners of the retail market. But Wexner's newest project is different. He wants to take an empty expanse of cornfields outside Columbus, Ohio, and turn it into a thriving, picturesque community. On 10,000 acres of land, Wexner constructs an upscale utopia he calls new albany ohio issues like quality the centrality of schools uh the nature of streets streetscape uh, the romance of georgian brick architecture it made sense to me as a marketer that you could really tell a wonderful story about you know kind of a, a rural countryside but with the conveniences of suburbia on summer nights in new albany The smell of fresh cut grass hangs in the air, and streets are lit with handmade copper lamps. Wexner also builds a new mansion for himself, a country club for his friends, and a business park for his associates. And he hires the local sheriff's department to be his personal security force. Epstein has helped Wexner build New Albany. He's the one who sets up anonymous shell companies that buy up the large tracts of land without attracting attention, since too much attention might have driven up prices. Bob Fertrakis was working as a local journalist at the time. It was thought that Epstein was brought in to kind of take care of that. Epstein's specialty was moving money around, hiding money, trading tax havens. Epstein pays 3.5 million for his own home in New Albany, a 23-room red brick mansion. This home in New Albany will be the site of the first reported sexual assault by Epstein. And it will also involve his best friend, Ghislaine Maxwell. I'm Lindsey Graham, the host of Wondery Show American Scandal. We bring to life some of the biggest controversies in U.S. history. Presidential lies, environmental disasters, corporate fraud. In our newest series, we look at the conflict in Waco, Texas, when a small religious group went head-to-head with the federal government. It was a conflict that led to a long and bloody standoff. To listen to this and other great series, subscribe now to American Scandal from Wondery. From Wondery comes Joe Exotic, Tiger King. Joe Exotic has always loved animals, especially tiger cubs, but Joe has a nemesis, Carol Baskin. She's another zoo owner who doesn't like the way Joe runs things. And when Carol accuses Joe of animal cruelty, Joe turns around and accuses her of being responsible for the mysterious disappearance of her late husband. Joe and Carol are hell bent on destroying each other at any cost. Subscribe to Joe Exotic on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. In 1995, at an art opening in Manhattan, Jeffrey Epstein meets a 25-year-old art student named Maria Farmer. She'd later tell the New York Times. He said, do you have a dad? And I said, that's an odd question. Of course I do, um, but my parents are divorced. And he asked me to describe my history, and I said, I grew up extremely wealthy. And um, unfortunately, at age 16, my dad left, and my mom never went after him, so we are you know, pretty, we're struggling. Maria's lanky and fresh-faced, an avid runner with shoulder-length blonde hair. Epstein ultimately hires her to work at his Manhattan townhouse, minding the door, checking in guests. But then Epstein gives her an exciting offer. Maria's been hired to make two original paintings for a new Jack Nicholson movie, and Epstein lets her spend the summer painting in his country house in New Albany, Ohio. In May 1996, she loads up her art supplies into a rented truck and drives to New Albany. Maria paints nudes and adolescents, and Epstein admires her work. That's how they first met. He bought one of her paintings. The painting shows a man looming in a doorway, naked, except for a pair of boxer shorts, staring across the room at a young girl lying on a sofa. The piece was inspired, Maria says, by Degas, who created a similar scene for his painting, The Rape. Maria paints from life, including using photos of her two younger sisters. She brings a few nude photographs of them with her for the summer, and keeps them in a storage box. Maria's time in New Albany comes with a lot of rules— She'll later tell the Washington Post that if she wants to go for a run, she has to do it inside the 10,000-square-foot mansion. If she wants to leave the house where she's staying, she has to call over to the Wexner mansion and get permission from Les Wexner's wife. She's not even allowed in the backyard. A spokesman for the Wexners denies that Wexner's wife ever spoke with Maria Farmer. In contrast, Epstein comes and goes as he pleases. He makes several trips to New Albany that summer and brings Ghislaine Maxwell with him. One night in New Albany, Ghislaine comes to Maria and tells her that Jeffrey wants a foot rub. Maria's offended. Who do they think she is? Their servant? But Ghislaine pressures her into it. Maria enters Epstein's bedroom, followed by Ghislaine. Epstein is lying on the bed, watching TV. Maria's not sure what to say. She looks at the television. What are you watching? Maria asks him. Ghislaine answers for him. Jeffrey's very smart. This is a show about math. Maria begins rubbing his feet, and Epstein starts moaning loudly. Then Epstein asks Maria to sit on the bed with him. Maxwell sits beside her. All of a sudden I was like, something's wrong, you know. They've never asked me for anything like this. Epstein and Maxwell begin violently groving Maria, both at the same time. She later tells the New York Times that they did this in unison, mirroring each other's movements and he just immediately just starts putting his hand on my breast, then she started doing the same thing. Maria is terrified that she's about to be raped. She flees to her own room and locks herself inside. When she's finally alone, she discovers that the nude photos of her sisters, who are 16 and 12 years old, that she had in her storage box to use for her paintings, are missing. Maria panics. She calls her mentor from her art program in New York, and he has clear advice for her. You've got to get out of there. Maria gets a hold of her father, who lives in Kentucky. He agrees to drive up to meet her. In the meantime, she calls 911, but they hang up on her. She tries the sheriff's office. The person on the other line tells her, we work for Wexner, and that an officer is already on site. Maria begs Wexner's security staff to allow her to leave, but they won't. Maria spends the night in her room, waiting for her father's arrival. The next morning, she calls Epstein and Maxwell and says she's leaving. Then one of Wexner's security guards shows up to tell her she's not going anywhere. He grabs Maria by the arm. She fights to get free. Finally, she's allowed to walk to the security gate to meet her father, who's waiting outside. The Wexners deny all of this, and a sheriff who worked there at the time says he doesn't remember but Maria maintains that Wexner's security wouldn't let her leave with her own father. Later, Maria will learn that Epstein and Maxwell had assaulted her younger sister earlier that summer, too. Maria had introduced 16-year-old Annie to Epstein and Maxwell back in New York. The sisters both spent time with them. He took them both out to the movies, and there, in the darkened theater, he reached over and began rubbing Annie's leg, but Maria never noticed. Annie writes about that moment in a diary entry dated January 25th, 1996. It was one of those things that just gave me a weird feeling, but wasn't that weird and probably normal. The one thing that kind of weirded me out about it was he let go of my hand when he was talking to Maria. The same summer he assaults Maria, Epstein had invited Annie to his ranch in New Mexico, saying that a group of school kids would be there. But when Annie got to the ranch, there was no group. It was just Epstein and Maxwell. One morning in New Mexico, Epstein climbs into 16 year old Annie's bed and asks to cuddle. Throughout her stay, Annie tells the New York Times that Maxwell kept asking Annie if she wanted a massage. Maxwell finally talked her into it and told Annie to undress. Maxwell then began massaging Annie, at first rubbing the girl through a sheet, but then she pulled back the sheet to touch Annie's chest. Annie didn't see Epstein as Maxwell did this, but she sensed that he might be watching. Maria didn't know all this as Epstein and Maxwell assaulted her that night in Ohio. But still, her mind drifted to Annie and whether they'd done something similar to her. Maxwell denies allegations that she was involved in the sexual abuse of young women and girls. She has not been charged with any crimes, though she faces multiple civil suits. Maria later tells the New York Times that after she returns to New York, she got a phone call from Maxwell, who threatens to burn Farmer's art and destroy her career. Maria goes to a police station in New York, but they tell her they can't do anything about an assault in Ohio. She calls the FBI and speaks with an agent for 30 minutes. She tells him about what happened to her in Ohio, and what happened to Annie in New York and New Mexico, and about all the young women and girls who go to Epstein's New York mansion. The FBI agent hears her out, then hangs up the phone. Maria Farmer doesn't hear from the FBI again for 10 years. Meanwhile, Jeffrey Epstein's position in Les Wexner's orbit is as strong as ever. A few weeks after his assault on Maria Farmer, he plays host and master of ceremonies at Wexner's 59th birthday party in Ohio. Ohio senator and former astronaut John Glenn is there. Alan Dershowitz is there. Former Israeli Prime Minister Shimon Peres is there, too. According to one guest, it's Epstein who introduces guests, gives toasts, and ensures the evening is a warm tribute to his patron. Years later, when Vanity Fair asks Wexner to describe Epstein, it gives a response that would make anyone blush. Very smart, with a combination of excellent judgment and unusually high standards. Also, he was always a most loyal friend. Angel's please. Victoria's Secret introduces Angel. One of Wexner's most successful retail brands is Victoria's Secret. I've had underwear thrown at me my whole life, (laughs) but it's never been Victoria's Secret. It's synonymous with beauty, sexuality, and to be a Victoria's Secret model is one of the best gigs in the modeling world. But word has gotten back to Wexner that Epstein has been using his connection to Wexner to meet young women. He's been telling them he's a talent scout for Victoria's Secret and that he can give them a modeling audition. In 1997, Jeffrey Epstein is in Los Angeles. He meets a young woman named Delisha Arden. Arden has long, dark hair and high cheekbones. He knows this because he solicited photos of Arden in lingerie, claiming that he was a scout for the Victoria's Secret catalog. Now Epstein waits in his room at the Shutters Hotel. Shudders is swanky, on the edge of the Santa Monica Pier, looking out over the beach. When Arden arrives, Epstein's wearing sweatpants and a red, white, and blue shirt. He tells her to come closer so he can evaluate her body. Then he attempts to undress her, puts his hand underneath her skirt. He's blunt, rough. She remembers him saying, Let me manhandle you for a second. Arden runs out of the room in tears and calls a friend. She gets the answering machine. I just came out of the um, hotel for meeting Jeffrey. I didn't expect that I had to be in a bra and underwear in front of him in the hotel room. And, and then he was touching my butt. The next day, she goes to the police. She tells her story. They listen. But then they discourage her from doing anything about it. You let him catch you and you didn't push him away. I said I pulled my skirt down and moved his hand. She goes back to the police a week later and files an official report for sexual battery. The police claim they interviewed Epstein after the report was filed, but that Arden didn't want to press charges. Arden says she did want to charge him. When the New York Times later reports Arden's story, they talked to two former Victoria's Secret executives who claim they warned Les Wexner about Epstein posing as a scout for lingerie models. The executives say that Wexner promised to deal with it. But if Wexner did ever confront Epstein, nothing seemed to change. Epstein was still just as present in Wexner's affairs with just as much control over his finances. And by all accounts, the intensity of Epstein's attacks on women would only continue to increase. A year after the assault in Santa Monica, a Wexner-controlled entity buys Epstein's Ohio mansion back from him. The sale price is $8 million, over double what Epstein had paid for the property a few years earlier. Around the same time, Epstein purchases an island in the Caribbean for roughly the same price. In effect, Epstein sells Wexner a property Wexner himself originally built and makes enough money on the deal to buy his own private island. The island's called Little St. James, Epstein calls it Little St. Jeff's instead. The islands will become a kingdom run by its own laws and its own morality, and Epstein's abuse of young girls and women is about to become a lot more brazen. The private jet that takes Epstein, Maxwell, and their friends to the Virgin Islands will be nicknamed the Lolita Express. And Maxwell, with her helicopter pilot's license, ferries guests to Epstein's tropical home, which will get an even more sinister nickname, Pedophile Island. So it's very private. It's the perfect world for a billionaire getting away with what he was doing. He could hold big parties there and and have huge orgies there and nobody would have any idea what was going on. That's on the next episode of The Mysterious Mr. Epstein. We reached out to Ghislaine Maxwell's attorney with a request for comment, but he did not respond by deadline. This has been part three of six of The Mysterious Mr. Epstein. On the next episode of The Mysterious Mr. Epstein, a magazine writer makes a disturbing discovery, and Epstein brings a young girl to meet one of his famous friends, Prince Andrew, Duke of York. This is a story about power, abuse, and manipulation. If you'd like to help us spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and every major listening app, as well as Wondery.com. If you like stories of far-reaching scandals, listen and subscribe to my series, American Scandal, where we tell the stories from the Enron financial fiasco to the Elliot Spitzer political drama. If you'd like to hear further analysis of Jeffrey Epstein's behavior, listen and subscribe to Real Crime Profile. They've produced a companion series called Forensically Deconstructing Epstein. If you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art of this podcast. You'll find the episode notes, including some details you may have missed. You'll also find some offers from our sponsors. By supporting them, you help us offer this show to you for free. This series deals with issues of sexual violence. If you or someone you know is a victim of sexual assault, reach out for help. In the U.S., you can contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline by calling 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. Or you can chat anonymously with a hotline staffer by messaging the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network at online.rainn.org. The Mysterious Mr. Epstein is hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham, for Airship. Sound designed by Derek Barons. This episode is written by Michael Canyon-Meyer. Additional reporting and research by Alyssa Jung Perry and Heather Schrehring. Associate producer is Caleb Bissinger. Executive producers are Jenny Lauer-Beckman, George Lavender, Marshall Louie and Hernan Lopez for Wondery. Hi, Wondery listeners. If you've ever wanted to listen to the best episodes of your favorite Wondery podcasts all in one place, well, now you can. Introducing The Best of Wondery. The Best of Wondery is a new podcast that features standalone, full-length episodes of some of the most captivating, compelling, and exciting stories from all of Wondery's originals, including Dr. Death, Business Wars, Life is Short with Justin Long, American History Tellers, The Shrink Next Door, and many more. To hear your favorite shows all in one place, search for The Best of Wondery on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite listening app.